Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, October 18th, 2013. What a weird day. Yeah, the the strangest story is that Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, literally crashed the uh, Strange Fire Conference. (laughs) And then there's photographic evidence that um, James McDonald was in on it, you know, kind of waiting in the car. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We slow down and take a look at what God's Word says in context, try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and from time to time we deal with some topics that are, um, well... <laughs> <laughs> just bizarre. Today's episode, no theme. Just, you know, just don't even try to put one together. I, I could not work out a theme for this day. I, in fact, I think I wasted two hours trying to figure out how to shoehorn a program together using a particular theme, and then it didn't work out. It kind of blew up in my face. <sighs> and by way of uh, programming note, next week, I think I will only be broadcasting on Monday, maybe Tuesday. I'll throw up a light episode. Uh, but um, I have to travel. I've got a, a speaking engagement, and uh, I will be out of town uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And uh, just want to let you all know that, so you don't panic. You know, when you see that the uh, podcast doesn't update, you'll go, "Oh, that's the reason why." I is because I'm I'm going to be out of pocket for part of next week. Okay, so <laughs> oh man. Where to start today? Where let, Let's talk about what we're going to talk about. There's several things that we can do here. Um, I can talk about, I can do the leadoff if I wanted to, on the uh, Mark Driscoll crashing strange fire. Now, um, unfortunately, I have not had the time to uh, sit on their live stream and uh, watch the strange fire conference. Um, I've been able to tune in a little bit here and a little bit there, and some enterprising person, uh, took the time to kind of you know rip the video of uh, Phil Johnson's uh, breakout session entitled uh, "Baby Bathwater." Oh my, was that thing brilliant? Uh, I mean, no joke, no joke. That lecture by Phil Johnson at Strange Fire entitled "Baby Bathwater" probably one of the most important lectures 
of the decade. I mean, easily one of the most important lectures of the decade, probably this century thus far, but we're only 13 years into the century. It's that important. In fact, uh, you know, I sent an email to um, to Phil find, trying to find out when the audio for Strange Fire is going to be available because if I were going to pick a segment to play for a light episode next week so that I can fill in, in during my travel time, that would be the lecture to listen to. Um, it's It's just that good. And yeah, one one of the things you know in listening to Phil Johnson is that this is a guy who is a wordsmith, and it just shows he is a master craftsman when it comes to his use of the of the English language and vocabulary, and it literally he pulled out all the stops on this particular lecture, and it was probably one of the best things I have ever heard as a corrective rebuke against the false teaching and shenanigans that are going on in the charismatic movement. And it's it it's just so well argued. It's so well documented and and just from an English language point of view and the vocabulary, it's so well polished that um, I don't see how any of the other speakers at that conference, even John MacArthur, I don't, I really don't know how anybody, even John MacArthur, could possibly compare to what uh, Phil Johnson did there. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant. So anyway, uh, you, you know, so the Strange Fire conference is going on, and of course, Mark Driscoll, who claims to be uh, you know, in the Reformed camp, he claims to be a Calvinist, but he doesn't believe in sola scriptura. You know, he's one of these new Calvinists, which is bizarre. It's, it's kind of like, you know, T.D. Jakes, you know, being a Trinitarian, as long as by, you know, persons, you mean manifestations. But in fact, we're going to talk about this. But uh, Driscoll crashed the uh, the Strange Fire conference, and I'll, I'll get to this in a little bit. And um you know, when when it was happening, I was getting tweets and Facebook, uh, you know, mentions, and it's like, what is going on? It, you know, it was uh, people had compared it to the Elephant Room conference, and uh, my being threatened with arrest, but it was not the same thing. In fact, there's, uh, uh, let's just say, Driscoll may have overplayed his hand, but it, it, as it turns out, that uh, yeah, he and McDonald were together. So James McDonald was in cahoots with this uh, PR stunt that. Uh, Driscoll was uh, up to, and uh, and you know, from what I've gathered from people who've sent me the intel that you know Driscoll and McDonald were together, you know, promoting and you know and getting ready for a conference that they're doing called Act Like Men. And you know, after this stunt by uh, Mark Driscoll, I, I think uh, they should change their the name of their conference from Act Like Men to Act Like Frat Boys. You know. That might be appropriate, but oh man! So I, I could talk about that, and I, I'm tempted to lead off with it, um, and I I just might do it. But then we also have a um, third eagle of the apocalypse update. Um, <laughs> this is bizarre. Um, so, <laughs> somebody sent uh, William Tapley ministry funds to help him start a new website. <laughs> Yeah, and it's uh, thirdeaglemedia.com, and so we'll be listening to him talking about that. And uh, and then we've also got a, a, you know a, a kind of a weird update. Uh, somebody posted this on my Facebook wall, 
And, uh, you know, and you know, I, I've been receiving email questions about the four blood moons. Have you heard about this? Um, and, uh, you know, it, funny enough, you know, I've even been asked in person about the four blood moons. And it's one of those things that's like, okay, you really want me to weigh in on this? I'll weigh in on it. But uh, we'll be listening to a Fox News uh, segment with, uh, <clears throat> hey, do we even put it this way? Pastor Hagee. Um, you know, Pastor John Hagee, you know, it, where he's talking about his new book called Four Blood Moons, Something is About to Change. And it's all based upon the fact that uh, we've got four blood moons in a row that are going to fall on uh, Jewish uh, high holy days. <laughs> oh, man. You know, so we'll be talking about that. Um, and then we'll kind of end off with... Um, you know, I guess it's going to be depending upon uh, our time here. But uh, have you all heard of Gary Hall? Going Gary Hall? Have I? Should I hear? Should I have heard of him? Gary Hall. Gary Hall is. Um, he's well. He's one of the, the 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 He's the dean of Washington, as in Washington D.C.'s National Cathedral. And uh, he's made some statements l- lately that uh, require a biblical response. So we'll uh, we'll take a look at that. And uh, and then in hour number two, we are going to be listening to a D. Martin Lloyd Jones sermon entitled "False Teaching," as he's going to be exegeting for us um, Galatians chapter four, I believe, verse fifteen. I'd have to check the uh, the note. I actually, it's right here. Yes, Galatians chapter four, verse fifteen. We'll be listening to a D. Martin Lloyd Jones program. And one of the things I was really shocked, really shocked to hear about, um, and it, of course, you know, I, I'm not reformed. I'm a confessional Lutheran. Um, it, one of the things I was shocked to hear about from Phil Johnson was that Martin Lloyd Jones's church, after his you know passing and moving on and whatever, they went charismatic. And uh, I was actually very surprised to hear that uh, little bit of information. But we'll save that for uh, if and when we're able to uh, secure the permission to play uh, Phil Johnson's baby bathwater lecture here at Fighting for the Faith. But again, it pro- probably easily one like the most important lecture delivered this decade. You know, and probably for the whole decade. I mean, it's just, and it's that important and it's that good. And, you know, I'm really hoping that we can uh, play that here. So with that, we've got to dive into the program proper and you get what's coming up. So I think we'll start off with the Mark Driscoll update. And with that, we'll have to play our Mark Driscoll update music. Here we go. Sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy, you hit to satisfy the leader's God given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well, there'd certainly be a scene. Look out, another one's off the bus. 
one's off the bus. And another one's off, and another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus. Ain't gonna stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus, they gotta get run over. There are people who wanna take turns driving the bus, they gotta get thrown off. Because <laughs> they wanna go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. That's uh, me singing Another One's Off the Bus. We're going to be uh, covering a story. We'll be letting the Christian Post do the speaking here as far as the outline of what we're going to be talking about. Which, by the way, is the reason, one of the reasons why I believe that this whole thing was a PR, publicity stunt by uh, Mark Driscoll. Um, is because of how quickly the Christian Post got on the story, if you know what I mean. Uh, f- so from the Christian Post, the headline reads, Mark Driscoll crashes John MacArthur's strange fire conference, question mark. Mark Driscoll, pastor of Mars Hill Church in Washington State, made his way Friday to Pastor John MacArthur's strange fire conference in California to hand out copies of his new book, A Call to Resurgence, Will Christianity Have a Funeral or a Future?, and presumably share his views on the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, which the Strange Fire Conference challenges. Driscoll shared Thursday on his Resurgence.com blog in a post titled, Is the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Bible, that he would be in California for a specific engagement and was aware of Pastor MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference. Quote, this week I am in the land of fruits and nuts, sunny California, for act like men in Long Beach. Rumor has it there is a conference not far away dealing with the person and work of the Holy Spirit, writes Driscoll 
In his post, in the blog post, Driscoll writes, quote, Various tribes approach the Holy Spirit differently because each emphasizes a different aspect of his work. Driscoll has uh, said in a previous sermon that his church believes in speaking in tongues, a charismatic gift of the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible. MacArthur, on the other hand, is a cessationist who believes that such charismatic gifts are no longer made available by the Holy Spirit to modern Christians. Driscoll has posted photos of himself talking with attendees at MacArthur's Strange Fire conference on Friday, where he did indeed hand out copies of his new book until they were reportedly seized by a member of the Strange Fire security team. Now, according to Mark Riccardi, the local outreach pastor at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, who was apparently in attendance at the Strange Fire conference, Driscoll was untruthful about his books being confiscated by security. And by the way, that's what what happened is is that you know Driscoll, while he was there. You know, somebody had his phone and was photographing him handing out the book at his book at Strange Fire. And then, uh, you know, and then, you know, the whatever conversation that he was having with the security guys at Strange Fire. And then Driscoll, you know, sent out a photograph with the thing saying that his books had been confiscated. But one of the attendees, Pastor Mike Riccardi, on his Facebook wall wrote, Mark Driscoll openly lies about what happened at his publicity stunt at Strange Fire. The director of the conference explained to Driscoll that those who are distributing books have gone through an extensive process and that they'd like him to not distribute them. After continuing to direct attendees to take the books, security offered to help him take the books back to his car. Driscoll insisted multiple times, no, they're my gift to Grace Church. I want you to have them. After insisting that security not help him with the books back to the car, the conference director accepted the gift and brought them to GCC offices. That's what happened. Driscoll's reporting of it in such a way is nothing short of lying, absolutely shameful and unbefitting of one who would take up upon himself the calling of preaching the truth. One commenter reading Riccardi's Facebook post suggests that the Mars Hill Church pastor had only been joking, writing, well, to be clear, I'm not a fan of Driscoll, and I have watched the entire live stream this week. It is possible that Driscoll's Instagram tweet was a joke, albeit a poor one. And according to a a tweet by another Strange Fire conference attendee, Driscoll might have been joking about the confiscation of his book. So Driscoll says to the world his books have been confiscated, and it turns out they were not. And then his, well, uh, his posse, you know, people who are his supporters, basically come, oh, it was probably just a joke. He was just joking about his his books being confiscated. Ha, 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 ha. By the way, if you want to see the photographs, you can just go to uh, Mark Driscoll's Twitter page. You can find that at twitter.com forward slash Pastor Mark, and you can see the photographs that he's put up. Now, uh, make a quick note here, okay? Um, Having read uh, his tweets uh, regarding this, one of the things I find interesting in all of this, and the thing that is, well, I would consider to be rather repulsive, Okay, repulsive, like in the truest sense of the sickening sense of repulsive, is that Driscoll sent out this tweet. He said, you know, at 12.01 p.m. today, Pacific time, Hey, strange fire friends, see you in one hour. I will have free copies of my new book. The chapters on tribalism and the Holy Spirit may be helpful. So the whole thing was that Driscoll was there 
passing out his new book entitled A Call to Resurgence, Will Christianity Have a Funeral or a Future? And he was specifically tweeting on the Strange Fire hashtag that he would be handing out his book because he believed that his chapter on tribalism and the Holy Spirit would be a helpful thing for the attendees of Strange Fire to to read. Okay. In other words, Driscoll was there to hand out his book as a theological corrective to what was being taught and spoken about at Strange Fire. Okay. <clears throat> this, by the way, coming from the man who participated in probably the greatest theological crime of the century. Uh, he was an accomplice in it, uh, the crime to mainstream T.D. Jakes and give him a clean theological bill of health. And uh, Driscoll was the one asking the questions at Elephant Room, too. Now, something to keep in mind, because people have drawn the parallel between my experience at Elephant Room 2 and Driscoll's experience at Strange Fire. Now, I would note that, um, number one, I wasn't going to the Elephant Room 2 conference for publicity. I was a paid attendee. I paid my hundred bucks to attend the Elephant Room conference. My goal in going to the Elephant Room 2 conference was to sit, to listen, and to take notes so that I could speak about it on the air, knowing what had been said and what had transpired. That I consider that to be a very important event. I paid the money to attend, had no intention of turning it into anything, just wanted to go and sit and watch. And when I arrived, I was greeted with, well, by security and one of the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel and informed that I was not welcome to attend the event. And then I was told that uh, if I tried to come back on the property, that uh, there would be a problem. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I was to leave the premises immediately and that, sec and that the police had already been called and that if I didn't want to be arrested for trespassing, then I would uh, you know, need to be gone by the time that they got there. So keep that in mind. Um, I didn't go to uh, for a publicity stunt or anything of the sort. Now, that being the case, Driscoll, he did not pay to attend um, Strange Fire, nor did he fill out the proper application and go through the screening process to be a book vendor at Strange Fire. No, what ended up happening is, is that this was a publicity stunt, a publicity stunt to get attention to, you know, for Mark Driscoll and, you know, so that he can be one of these guys who looks like he's standing up to those cessationists over at Strange Fire and, you know, and standing for the truth. And again, the irony here is just ridiculous, okay? He, Driscoll is shown to be one who, um, when it comes to the truth, sometimes he understands it and sometimes he doesn't. And the, when the times that he doesn't get the truth, um, it's important. Like when he tried to mainstream T.D. Jakes and give him a clean theological bill of health and allowed T.D. Jakes to say that, oh, yeah, he believes in in uh, that God exists in three persons. As long as by three persons, you mean three manifestations. So, uh, but so th that being the case, the parallel between me and Driscoll, um, you know, my treatment at Elephant Room and Driscoll's uh, treatment at uh, Strange Fire, two completely different things and two completely different reasons for attending. Driscoll was purposely 
um, you know, doing a PR stunt. And as it turns out, uh, there's a photograph that is also posted on the Christian Post website that shows that James McDonald yeah, of Elephant Room 2 was with Driscoll uh, and was, you know, in the parking lot uh, while Driscoll was uh, doing his stunt. And so I, I think that says a lot. And I'm kind of thankful, thankful that um, these guys have shown themselves to be what they are. I think it makes it, it makes it a lot easier for people to see what Driscoll and McDonald are really all about. And again, you know, if you really want to know the content of what's going on uh, at Strange Fire, you need to listen to it. And I'm, I haven't had the opportunity to listen to all of it. I've only listened to parts of it. And what I've heard are, are absolutely brilliant and well done. And so my hope is that all of this back, backfires and that there will be a lot of people who otherwise maybe not would have would have not have paid attention to strange fire who will now be curious and want to hear what it is that was being taught there so that you know because oftentimes isn't that how it goes you know you know driscoll or somebody like him pulls a frat boy stunt and the frat boy stunt uh, ends up pointing their followers to something that's absolutely solid, and so their their followers would listen, thinking, "Oh, I can, I'm gonna listen to this thing, and you know, you know, grab some popcorn, and you know, this will be entertaining, and you know, set out with the idea, of thinking that it's gonna be fun and entertaining, and debunk it." And then, you know, <laughs> Lord willing, they'll listen to what Phil Johnson said at his baby bathwater lecture. And as a result of it, maybe they'll have their eyes open. Just, you know, something to think about. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We got a William Tapley update, uh, John Hagee, and maybe this other guy. We'll see. It depends on time. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. She's praying to give us passengers more leg room. Oh. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, what in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back and Tray tables are in their full, upright, and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. 
He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight. Which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. New Jersey anyway! That's it! God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey! I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened! There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted 
new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Oh. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially when your pastor is busy exegeting his dreams and visions rather than God's word. And just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. That's right. Time for a third eagle of the apocalypse update. Oh, man. That's our William Tampley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times, update music, and, oh man, William Tapley has some amazing news to announce. Um, he's starting another website. He's no longer just going to be on YouTube. <clears throat> he actually has people who have supported him and have made it possible for him to open up a website, thirdeaglemedia.com. Uh, here's William Tapley to explain. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet 
of the end times. Well, first of all, I have a wonderful announcement, and that is that my new website, thirdeaglemedia.com, is up and running. So let me mention that name again because it's a little bit different than Third Eagle Books. It's thirdeaglemedia.com. And I will put a link below in the description box. And secondly, I want to thank all of you who contributed. Without you, this would not be possible. And this is an extremely important work. And although I'm not able to thank each one of you in person, I want to say this. I am adding one rosary to my daily prayers. And this is going to be specifically... Wow, one whole rosary added to your daily prayers. Whew, what a treat. For those of you who volunteer with my project, with my ministry, for those who um, promote my ministry through the free bumper sticker, and for those of you who contribute financially, all of you are doing a wonderful work. And I am specifically praying that you will survive through the Great Tribulation. And it will be very soon you will understand why that is very important. Wow. Oh, so selfless of you. Praying an extra rosary for all of those supporters of yours so that they'll survive. <laughs> what do you say to something like that? Good night. And now I want to explain why this website is so very important. All right, well, get on with it. Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him who reads understand. However, the angel told Daniel that his prophecies were sealed up. So how can we reconcile these two statements? Um, please tell me <laughs> that the answer has nothing to, oh man, he's, no, really? Okay, so apparently <laughs> the way to reconcile these two statements has something to do with his new website. Oh, I knew this. Oh man, here we go. How can we read and understand, as Jesus told us we must do, if the prophecies of Daniel are hidden, if they are sealed up, if they are under lock and key. Do you have the key? Well, there is a little disclaimer at the end of what the angel told Daniel. Please share. He said the prophecies would be sealed up until the time of the end. Which apparently is now. And we are at that time now. And it is critical that we unseal the prophecies of Daniel. And I'm sure you've figured out how to do that. And that is the purpose of this website. No, 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 no. Now, don't expect to read headlines in the New York Times tomorrow that the prophecies of Daniel have been unsealed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even expect to read it like in the local classifieds. Good night. This news is for you, the remnant. 
because you are the ones who are going to survive the great tribulation and you must know how to unseal the prophecies of Daniel. Right. Now the good news is is that <clears throat> on previous installations of um of William Tapley's Revelation Unraveled <laughs> which is uh, totally one of the most ironic misnomers ever in all of theological history. <laughs> It was more like Revelation totally tangled. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, thankfully, because I'm a Protestant, I don't have to worry about how to survive all of this because according to William Tapley, I'm going to get raptured. So it's only those Catholics out there that have to worry about this. They've got to figure out how to, number one, unseal these seals of, of Daniel. And then they've got to grab a rosary and head out to the wilderness. And <laughs> I mean, I'm going to lose it. This is, oh man, it must be Friday. Now I have come to understand that even though I have explained this in my YouTube videos, you have not been able to read and understand the prophecies. And you cannot read and understand the prophecies of Daniel in your Bible. Because the prophecies of Daniel, as printed in your Bible and my Bible, are sealed up. Right. What we have we now have 30gomedia.com to help on, you know, break those seals, you know. They are hidden. So here is what you must do. You click on the link below in the description box to my new 30gomedia.com website. When you get there, you click on Daniel unsealed. And you read, first of all, the instructions about Daniel chapter number 7. After you, you have read the instructions, you click on the tab under Daniel Unsealed. Yeah. Which says Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 28. Got it. And you will find either a printer or an arrow. You can click on either one. If you click on the printer... <laughs> You can. It makes me wonder if he's going to do tech support. You know, uh, thank you for calling Revelation Unraveled. We are very happy to be helping you with your tech support questions for thirdigomedia.com. <laughs> this is not good. Print the four pages, or just the three pages. That is pages two, three, and four, which I have in my hand here. You don't need the first page. That is simply a picture of an angel. Or you can click on the arrow. Yeah. And the arrow will download the PDF file to your computer. Got it, yeah. Whereupon you can, again, print the three necessary pages, that is two through four. Yeah, you got them right here. From your own computer. Yeah, you got them printed out right here. Once you have done that, you will have the three pages, pages two, three, and four. Yeah, right here, got them. Of Daniel chapter number seven. Right, now what? However, now you are going to be able to read and understand them. Ah. Because you must reassemble them uh -huh. according to Daniel's hidden verse structure. Uh -huh. Okay, let's see. Okay, so I gotta take these pages and then reassemble them. <sighs> Maybe it's, well, it's a lot harder than it looks. This is how Daniel sealed up his prophecy. As I said before, you cannot read and understand Daniel as his chapters are printed in your Bible. You must print them out 
as I am instructing you yeah. and reassemble them. Okay, got it. You assemble page two to three. Uh-huh. I put a simple cellophane tape down the back. Ah, you tape. assemble page two to page three. I don't have any as, tape. Again, and three to four with a simple cellophane tape down the back. Will, will a and paper when you have assembled work? them, you will have three sheets connected together. This is the only way you can read and understand Daniel. Okay, I got clips. Now, what I do after I have assembled the three pages is I attach them to a piece of... Okay, all right, hang on a second here. I I don't have any tape in uh, the studio here. Huh. All right, hang on, hang on. I got the clips. I'm going to clip them. Hang on. All right, let's let's try. Let's grab these two. Okay, over here. Uh, well, it's uh, it's working. Okay, I got them. I'm clipping them together. Cardboard. This is a simple cardboard box like you might get from the supermarket. This makes them rigid. It makes them much easier to deal with, to study them. And you have to study how Daniel sealed up his prophecies. Okay. And although I can explain the interpretation, I'm sh- and I have, I'm pre- <laughs> I'm sure you think you can. Previous programs, this is critical. For you to also read and understand Daniel. Many of my co-prophecies you have helped me with. You have added. <laughs> His co-prophecies. Holy. And I want all of you to do this. And you can put your comments below. And let me know what you discover as you read and understand as Jesus told us we must do. Now, let's take a quick look at how Daniel sealed up his prophecy in chapter number 7. Right on. Okay, I, I've got my clipped pages all assembled together, I think, in the right order. Now, this will be just a quick review of Daniel chapter 7. Mine doesn't look as spiffy as yours does, but I've got, then again, he took his pages and put them out on a piece of cardboard. I don't have any cardboard in here, do I? And how he sealed up this prophecy, because I have explained this before in previous videos. In verse 6, in verse 17, in verse 23, Daniel uses the word for two times in those three verses. Okay. And he does not do that in any other verse. So that that, unvi- that uh, reveals the hidden verse structure to help us unseal all this stuff. Got it. That means those verses must be lined up. Okay. And when you do that, yeah. you get six verses, one through six. Yeah. Six verses here, 12 yeah. through 17. Okay. And six verses here, 18 through 23. And of course, that gives us the number of the Antichrist, 666. Who knew? I'm okay. Following those 666 verses are two sets of five verses, 7 through 11 and 24 through 28. And of course, those verses represent Mary's rosary. Uh, do I need to go on? Okay. So, that, that I think that's about as much as I can take. So there's William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, trying to help us via his new website, thirdeaglemedia.com, to do what Jesus apparently told us to do, and that's to unseal the sealed prophecies of Daniel so that we can figure out how to survive and, uh, you know, the the great tribulation and stuff. And, of course, I don't have to worry about that because I'm a Protestant, and he tells me the Protestants are going to get raptured. So 
thankfully I got nothing to worry about. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic and you ha- and uh, and you don't want to go through all the rigmarole of having to unseal Daniel's prophecies, and uh, in, and then you know and then figure out from there how to survive all this stuff, you know, you know, finding the hidden meaning and all that kind of stuff in the in the hidden verse structure, you know, it's probably easier for you to just convert to Lutheranism. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that's just a sure bet. And, and I'm, from what I understand that you can do that all the way up until like right before the end and, uh, and it will be okay. <laughs> It'll be okay. <sighs> oh man. Yeah. Again, one of the reasons I <clears throat> put William Tapley on the program is because when he does it, everyone sees it for the lunacy that it is. But when somebody with some little bit more charisma and you know, production value does it, it is harder to see what the problem is. And so that's <clears throat> what we're going to look at next. From the foxnews.com website, mm-hmm, we're going to be looking at a question regarding um, ask if four blood moons are a sign of the apocalyptic end times. That's right. Four blood moons. Are they a sign of apocalyptic uh, end times? We're going to be listening to a segment from Fox News uh, where the uh, hostess from uh, Fox News is interviewing John Hagee on his new book, Four Blood Moons, Something is About to Change. Uh, Here's the Fox News reporter gal to explain. Welcome to another segment of the Spirit of Debate. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel. Does God use the motion of the planets to communicate with us, to announce things to come? Well, many people believe that an astronomical occurrence called four blood moons is a message from God. A blood moon is a full lunar eclipse, and four of them in a row is called a tetrad. When they've occurred on the Jewish High Holy Days, it's coincided with major historical events, like the Six-Day War in 1967. Four blood moons on the Jewish High Holy Days has happened only three times in the last 500 years. The next time it occurs is starting next spring on the Jewish Passover. Pastor Hagee has written a book called Four Blood Moons, Something is About to Change, and he joins me now. This is fascinating because I get a lot of books about end times prophecies and what's the Bible trying to say. And this one really fascinated me because it charts history. Of right. Astronomical occurrences, the Jewish High Holy Days of Passover and the Feast of the Tabernacles, and these occurrences. And I want to go over just a couple of the things that have happened because it's only happened in three times. Three times in over 500 years. In 500 years. And this is confirmed by NASA. This is not something that a religious think tank put together. This is something that. Okay, so apparently the three times in the last 500 years that four blood moons fell. On Jewish High Holy Days, that would be uh, the years 1493 to 1494, and when those three, uh, sorry, four blood moons occurred, we have the fall of Spain, Jews were expelled, Columbus discovered America, mm-hmm. and then back in 1949 to 1950, the last time this tetrad occurred, uh, follows uh, follows Israel uh, declared as a nation. Okay, so Israel declared as a nation back in 1949 to 50, and then again in 1967 to 68, the four blood moons. That was the year there was the Six Day War. So there, you know, and see, this is confirmed by NASA. 
Yeah, I I don't think NASA actually has confirmed any of the theology supposedly associated with this, just that the astronomical event occurred in those years, you know, three times in the last 500 years. So apparently this is all going to happen again, starting on April 15th of next year, 2014, you got the Jewish Passover, there's going to be a blood moon, October 8th, 2014, next year, Feast of Tabernacles, blood moon, April 4th, 2015, Jewish Passover, blood moon, and then September 28th, 2015, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, blood moon. So what does that mean? Probably nothing. See, that's, you know, probably absolutely nothing. And I'll I'll explain the reason why that means probably absolutely nothing in a minute here. But let's let the story spin out just a little longer because it's oh so fun. You can check on the Internet. This is what NASA says has happened. And this is what they say is going to happen. This is, um, and we have a, a full screen up, and, the, and I, it's exactly what I did when I saw your book, because I wanted to verify that these things had happened, and sure enough, it was. That's why I wanted to have you on. Four blood moons um, have occurred in uh, 1493-94, fall of Spain, Jews expelled um, from them, and Columbus discovers America, what the Bible calls it, the infant nation. Right. 1949 to 1950, it follows Israel being declared a nation. And then... Uh, wait, 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 what the Bible calls the infant nation? I don't think the Bible refers to the United States of America at all. A nation state. And then 1967, 68, the Six-Day War. That's Those are the last three times yes. that a four blood moons have occurred. Right. And so the next time it occurs actually is starting next spring. Starts April the 15th. 2014 next spring, and it happens on Passover. The second blood moon next year will be October the 8th on the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in 2015, it will happen again on Passover. And then it will happen the last time, September the 15th, and that will be on the Feast of Tabernacles. The the irony of what it takes to get the sun the earth and the moon in a perfect alignment to have a blood moon and then for those blood moons to be on this exact date is something that just is uh, beyond coincidental. Uh, The Bible very clearly says, Joel the second chapter says, the day of the Lord will be as when the sun refuses to shine. The significant thing is yeah, uh, Joel there talking about the day of the Lord, um, that's re- referring specifically to the day of judgment. And something to keep in mind about blood moons. Uh, are you ready? It, it's just a lunar It's just a, you know, it's a lunar eclipse. And it's not as if the sun's refusing to shine because normally we don't expect the sun to shine in the middle of the night. That between these four blood moons will be a total solar eclipse. Yeah, you make it sound like, you know, those solar eclipses, like, never happen, or there's going to be global or something. Um, yeah, f- From what I understand, I mean, there's what, what you know, five or six, seven eclipses every year uh, between the solar eclipses and the lunar eclipses, you know, around the planet. It This is a regular occurrence. It happens every year. And the moon will be turned to blood. That is exactly repeated in Acts, the second chapter. It is repeated by Jesus Christ in the book of Luke, the 21st chapter, when he said, You will see the sun, signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. 
And when you see these signs, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. Yeah, now let's talk about those signs here. Do you think that Jesus was referring to a sign in the heavens that none of us would really know for sure really indicated his return? Or do you think he's referring instead to something that everybody would look to and go, whoa, that's, whoa, the end draws nigh. And and like, there's no doubt, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, this whole thing, you know, the whole premise of these blood moons is that, you know, it doesn't happen all that often, although it's happened twice. This four blood moons thing has happened twice in less than 100 years. And uh, so this will be the third time in less than 100 years that it's happened. And um, why on earth, you know, should I think that anything super important is going to happen? Because this happens from time to time, you know. And so because it happens from time to time all by itself and nothing super cataclysmic has really occurred uh, when these uh, tatrads have occurred, why should I look and go, oh, well, look, there's four blood moons coming and a solar eclipse right in the middle of it. That that must be the sign of the uh, of the day of the Lord and my redemption's drawing nigh. And then you sit there and scratch your head and go, well, I hope I'm right. Maybe I'm right. Yeah, no, I don't think Jesus is having us look to something like this. Instead, if he, if there's going to be a sign in the heavens that indicates his return, it's not going to leave anybody in doubt because we would take hope because our we would say, oh, look, that's the sign. Our redemption draws nigh. Christ is coming back. But this is just, well, I got to hope, you know. Jesus is c- coming back. My redemption draws nigh with a plus or minus of, you know, 80% chance one way or another. It's not that much, that doesn't really give me any hope. You know what I'm saying? So you're saying that this next four blood moons that's starting next spring, is this the end times what we're looking for? Or do, do you not know what is being communicated with this? Technically. Yeah, um, this is... <laughs> Well, uh, let's see how specific he gets. I mean, you know, I mean, sure. I mean, he's selling books right now. Something's about to change. You know, that's kind of the premise of something's going to give. Well, is it the end? Prophetically, the end times began with the feast of with the outpouring of Pentecost 2000 years ago. Uh, So we have been in the end times when you believe the dispensational seven day period of time that equates to the seven days of generation. There are seven ages and dispensations. We have been in the end times a long time. But when we are reaching that point in time, when world... So Hagee's a dispensationalist. Right. History is about to change. We are entering that zone, and it's going to change forever. It's going to change dramatically, and it's going to involve Israel because it has involved Israel in 1492, 1948, 1967. And each time it has gone from tragedy to triumph. 1492, as you said, the Jewish people were kicked out of Spain with the Edict of Expulsion by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. America was discovered and the Jewish people had a home until Israel became the state. Um, I don't... <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, I've never read in the history books of the mass immigration of Jews to the United States starting in 1492. Um, 
I'm having a problem with the way you're interpreting history. Have you been to the William Tapley School of uh, like word interpretation and end times prophecy uh, revelation uh, unsealing? In 1948-49, Israel was a state. The thing that preceded that was the Holocaust, a, ni- a, a time of yeah. fears and tragedy. So um, the um, four blood moons in 4950 had something to do with the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. 1967 was the Six-Day War, yeah. and then Jerusalem became a part of the state. But what do we know what it's going to happen? I mean, uh, Yeah, she wants some specifics here, man. Come on, cough up some eschatological stuff she can hang on to here. I mean, yeah, this sounds like... Joseph Atwill's typological code in the uh, Josephus's Jewish Wars. I mean, there's not much to cling on to here. We get a lot of prophecy, a lot of end-time prophecies. Um, I get books a lot. and But there's no telling what is actually going to happen. I mean, you could not have pre- uh, predicted a six-day war. You could not have predicted a lot of the things that happened after the Second World War with the, you know, w- with the uh, partition of, for Israel. Is there any... Is there any way to predict actually what's going to happen? And it will happen after the last four blood moons, which would be in 2015. Come on, open up your tea leaves, man, and start, you know, interpreting. I mean, you need to go find a small animal and spill its entrails on the ground. Come on, give us something here. There is a sequence of prophetic events that the Bible says will happen. Yeah, okay. But it does not give a win. Yeah. In other words, um, something may or may not happen. Sometime in the near future, something-ish is going to be occurring-ish. But I can't say with any specificity that these four blood moons really could really be meaning that or the other thing. But by my book, it'll help you understand that I don't know what I'm saying. It just says when you see these signs like this... Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I again, I call me a skeptic here, but I don't think that the four blood moons is a, is any of the signs that Jesus was pointing to because, like I said, it's happened already a few times, and the earth hasn't shaken, Christ hasn't returned, anything like that. It's not like people look at the four blood moons and go, "Oh, look, my redemption draweth nigh." No. Re, re, lift up your heads and rejoice, your redemption draweth nigh, meaning that the end of this age is coming. And the Messianic Age is going to appear. Yeah, we've known that the end of this age is coming. Um, then the bl- four blood moons probably have, in fact, I would say there's greater than 99.9% chance they have nothing to do with Christ's return in the near future. Not saying that Christ isn't or is going to come back in the near future. I have no idea. I, I have not yet been able to convince Jesus to come and have you know coffee with me at Starbucks. Um, as a result of it, I'm, well, like everybody else, I'm beheld to his word, and his word doesn't give us the when. And I am, based on what you're doing with these four blood moons, I'm more and more convinced they have nothing to do with Christ's return because I can't say with any specificity, oh, look, my redemption draweth nigh. Look, there's four blood moons. You no, know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if there's going to be a sign in heaven that would make me say, hey, my redemption draweth nigh, the day of the Lord is coming, Christ is coming back, this age is going to end, it would not be something that, I would have to guess about. You know what I'm saying? How long is that? No one knows. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and I urge people to not only you know check out your book, but also check out uh, what's on the Internet, because there's a lot of stuff about four blood moons that people can check out for themselves uh, and see. Yeah, because <laughs> as William Tapley has pointed out <laughs> to us, the, the Internet's just the best place ever to, you know, 
try to figure out where when the end of the world is coming, especially when it deals with four blood moons. You, what they think. I mean, there are a lot of people who just poo-poo any kind of end-time prophecy. There are a lot of theologians that say that you can't predict what's going to happen. But the, the fact is, is that this is an astronomical occurrence that did occur, that happened at this time, and that the next one is going to start happening next spring. So it's fascinating. And, you know, one last thing, though. For the first time in history, I believe Hanukkah is on Thanksgiving. For the first time in thousands of years, and it will not happen ever again. Is that part of what's changing in this world, too? God's trying to communicate with us something, or is this not... <laughs> oh, no. God's trying to send a message because Hanukkah is on Thanksgiving this year. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because if God were trying to communicate something, God would be completely inept at being able to communicate. You just know, see poor God up there going... You know, I really want to be able to communicate to people, and it's just so frustrating. And, you know, maybe if I you know, put, make it so the Hanukkah falls on Thanksgiving, that somehow I can get my message across. And, you know, I, I went ahead and went through all the trouble of making sure this year that Hanukkah fell on on Thanksgiving. And, and now everyone's confused as to what my message is. I must not have said it very clearly. And, you know... <laughs> It's just so difficult being the Holy Spirit. I I never this whole world thing and the you know the internet. It's all confusing to me. You know, what? <laughs> Seriously, if God wants to communicate to us, He's not going to do it in a way that makes us scratch our head and go, "Uh, what do you think God's saying?" I don't know. What do you think? I uh, this is ridiculous. Even related. Well, I uh, I can't address that because that's not something I've researched. But I have researched <laughs> Like if you researched it. Yeah. Hanukkah falls on Thanksgiving this year. What do you think that what God's trying to say? Well, I don't know. I haven't researched it yet. You can research until you're blue in the face. You will not find any message from God in that. Search this backwards and forwards. And the concept that these four blood moons happen on a high holiday four times in a row with a solar eclipse in the middle is beyond the null hypothesis of probability. Yeah. This is something that the Bible using the sun, the moon, and the stars as a communication system to humanity says something is about to change. <laughs> really? Okay, so the sun, the moon, and the stars are trying to communicate to humanity something is about to change. And again... You know, what a lame communication system. I mean, it's so lame that we have to depend upon John Hagee to figure out what it is that these the sun, the moon, and the stars are trying to communicate. And he hasn't shown with any specificity that he even knows what's being communicated by the sun, the moon, and the stars here, except for maybe, just maybe, something is going to change. <laughs> <laughs> I swear it would I would be able to communicate to all of you listeners of Fighting for the Faith more effectively if I were to go out into the Montana prairie and light a signal fire and send up smoke signals and I and it, it, even if without any video whatsoever that would be a more effective way of communicating to you the dangers of heresy than <laughs> 
what they're offering here. Oh, man. Hi. I've got to go to my second break. I can't handle this anymore. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. We're going to end off the week with a good sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! And that was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay! I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform, but it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to end off with a good sermon. Uh, Notice that we're going to go from really vague communication, you know, unsealing the seals of Daniel, trying to divine the meaning of the four blood moons, not sure what it means, to very clear communication from God's word, exegeted excellently. 
big difference. See if you can see the stark contrast here. Shows you where you should be paying attention to, by the way. But let's do this right. Review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Martin Lloyd Jones and the Martin Lloyd Jones Trust Organization. Uh, we'll be listening to a sermon by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones on Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, entitled False Teaching. I think this is a timely topic, especially considering the program that you're listening to. Fantastic sermon. I think you'll enjoy it. In fact, I'm not even going to tout it anymore. Just we're going to go ahead and ease the music back. And without any further ado, here, listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones in his sermon entitled False Teaching. Here we go. I should like to call your attention this morning to the first statement, the first phrase, the first question in the 15th verse of that fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians which we have read together at the beginning. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? Now, I call your attention to that question addressed by the apostle in this way to the members of this church or these churches in Galatia in order that uh, we may consider together Another cause of uh, what may be described as spiritual depression or unhappiness in the Christian life. We've been engaged now for a number of months on these Sunday mornings in considering this condition, holding as we do and as we do increasingly that the main problem today in a religious sense lies within the church and not outside the church, we conceive it to be our first duty to discover the causes of the depressed condition of so many Christian people. For we start from this basic assumption that when the church is healthy, when the church is alive, when the church is as she should be and as she was in the early days of the New Testament at the beginning, well then, she invariably does have an impact upon the world and causes people to pay attention and to listen. So that the high road to revival always is to start in the church and with the life of those who claim to be Christian. Nothing does greater harm to the gospel of Christ than a depressed Christian, an uncertain and unhappy Christian, indeed a miserable Christian. So we have been examining at our leisure the various causes of this, alas, far too common condition. And we have discovered that there are a large number of them. And that for each one, there is in the scripture somewhere the appropriate remedy, the appropriate treatment. Now, this morning we come to another of these causes. 
The whole of this epistle to the Galatians rarely deals with this one question. These Galatians had listened to the preaching of the gospel by the apostle Paul. They were pagans, most of them. They were outside God. They had no knowledge whatsoever of him and of his son and of the great Christian salvation. But the apostle Paul had come and had preached to them. And they had received the message and the gospel with great joy. He describes even in detail their joy uh, when they had first met him and when he had first preached to them. It's quite clear that the apostle, when he was there, was not well physically. There can be very little doubt that he had some kind of acute exacerbation of that eye trouble with which he was troubled and uh, afflicted for so long. Because as he reminds them here, that uh, when he was with them, they would have plucked out their own eyes and have given them to him if that could have helped him. They were not uh, in any way disturbed by his appearance. One gathers that this painful, inflammatory condition of his eyes from which the apostle suffered was rather offensive and repulsive even to look at. His eyes were red and probably contained a good deal of pus. There was nothing prepossessing in any case about the appearance of the apostle. As he reminds the church at Corinth, he, his presence was weak. He was not what is called today a great personality, a very ordinary man to look at, apparently. And in addition, he'd got this eye trouble, which almost rendered him offensive to them, as he here reminds them. They were not in any way, he says, my temptation which was in my flesh, he despised not. Uh, nor rejected. In spite of that, they received him as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And they had rejoiced in this wonderful salvation. But they were no longer like that. They've become unhappy. He's able to ask this very question directly. Where is then the blessedness he spake of? They were unhappy themselves. They'd uh, turned almost against the apostle. And their whole condition was one which was so depressed that he can even use this sort of language. My little children of whom I travel in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now this is a very striking change, isn't it? Indeed the apostle has been saying this many times in the earlier parts of his letter to them. In the sixth verse of the first chapter he puts it at once like this. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. And then he puts it again in the third verse, oh, in the third chapter, in the first verse, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Now, without adducing further evidence, I think it's clear, is it not, that these Galatian Christians, who had been so happy, so rejoicing in their newfound salvation, had now become spiritually unhappy and depressed. And that is the sole reason why the apostle writes to them. Well, now then, the question confronting us is this. What was the cause of this change? What had happened to them? What had gone wrong? And the answer is perfectly simple. It can be put in, in one phrase. It was all entirely due to false teaching. 
That was the problem in the churches of Galatia. All their troubles had emanated from a certain false teaching which these people had believed and had espoused. Now, this is something which is dealt with very frequently in the New Testament. Indeed, there is scarcely a single New Testament epistle, but that you will find that this aspect of the matter is raised and dealt with somewhere or another. These infant Christian churches were being much troubled by certain types of teachers who followed round uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, imitated his manner in so, in so many respects. They went round the very circuits that he'd gone round himself. And they went and they taught this particular teaching of theirs. And the result was not only to cause confusion in the churches, uh, but to lead to this depressed and unhappy and miserable condition in the lives of so many Christian people. Now, there is no question at all that this was, of course, the work of the devil. The apostle doesn't hesitate to say so, and many times. He says that the devil can even transform himself into an angel of light. And he attacks Christian people, and he insinuates these false ideas into their minds, and the result is that for the time being he may wreck entirely their Christian testimony and rob them of their happiness. Of course, the history of the Christian church since the end of the New Testament canon is full of exactly the same thing. Here it is, it began almost at once and it has continued more or less ever since. And thus, in a sense, it is true to say that the history of the Christian church is in many ways the history of the rising of many a heresy and many an error, the battle of the church against such, and the delivery of the church by the power of the Spirit of God. Now this is obviously a very great subject. I can but introduce it and touch upon it this morning. False teaching can take many, many different forms. But we can divide them into two main sections. Sometimes it takes the form of a blank denial of the truth and of the cardinal principles and tenets of the Christian faith. Now, let's be quite clear about that. Sometimes I say it can take that form. It can still represent itself as Christian, but in actual fact it is a denial of the Christian message. That was partly the case in, the, in, 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 in this instance of Galatia. But it has certainly been the case many times since then. There have been teachers who have called themselves Christian who have even denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still they've called themselves Christian. Sometimes then I say it can take a blank denial of the very cardinal foundational principles of our faith. But it doesn't always take that form. It has another form. And the second one is the one to which I want to advert more particularly this morning. For in a sense, this second form is even more dangerous than the first. And this second form is the form that it had taken in particular amongst the churches of Galatia. Here it is not so much a denial of the faith. Here it isn't so much uh, a contradiction of the cardinal elements and tenets of the faith. It's rather this. It, it is a teaching which suggests 
that something else is required in addition to what we've already believed. That was the peculiar form which he took in the case of Galatia. These uh, teachers, these false teachers who had gone round after the Apostle Paul had left these churches and were normally described as the Judaizing teachers, the Judaizers, they went round and they said this. They said, yes, you've believed the gospel. You've believed Paul's preaching. That's perfectly right. Everything he said, they said, was right. But he didn't go far enough. He left out something that was absolutely vital. And that vital something was circumcision. They said, yes, hold on to everything you believe. But if you want to be true Christians, in addition, you must be circumcised. That was the essence of their teaching. Now, it's not at all difficult to see and to understand how that particular teaching came in. The first Christians of all, after all, were Jews. You can read about them in the Gospels, you can read about them in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And, let's be quite fair to them, it's very easy to understand their whole situation. They knew that their old religion was something that had been given by God. And they realized that it was true. Their difficulty was how to understand the new teaching in the light of their old and traditional teaching. They knew that circumcision had been given by God to Abraham and that it had been continued ever since. But here now was a new teaching which says that that is no longer necessary. That that old distinction between Jew and Gentile had been abolished. That circumcision was something temporary. That now there is a new position. Now, they were unhappy about this. They were not unhappy about Gentiles coming in. At first, even that was a difficulty to them. You remember that even the Apostle Peter himself found that rather difficult. And it was only when God gave him a vision from heaven that he was prepared for receiving Cornelius and his household and other Gentiles into the Christian church. But he'd been satisfied, and others had been satisfied. And yet, being satisfied on the admission of the Gentiles... They couldn't quite see how a Gentile could be a Christian unless at the same time he became a Jew also. They could see that Christianity was the logical outcome of Judaism, but they couldn't quite see how a man could come into it without going via Judaism. That was their heresy. That was their teaching. So they'd gone to these Gentile Christians in Galatia and had suggested to them that if they were to be truly Christian, they must also submit to circumcision. They must put themselves, as it were, under the law first. Now that's the theme which the Apostle deals with in this epistle to the Galatians. And you can't read it without being moved. You can't read it without being gripped. He's writing at white heat. He's writing with passion. He's so concerned about this that he even leaves out his customary preliminary salutation. He doesn't thank them for anything as he normally does. He doesn't praise them. At once, having just opened his letter, he plunges into it. And by asking that question in the sixth verse, I marvel that he has so soon removed. Why does he feel this passion? Why is he so moved? Why is he writing at white heat? Well, the answer is, of course, that he feels, as he makes so plain and clear throughout the letter, that the whole Christian standing and position of these people was at stake. And that unless they saw the truth of this matter, their whole Christian position might very well be in jeopardy. 
There is no letter, therefore, in which the apostle speaks with such vehemence. We are living in an age which doesn't like vehemence, I know, but the apostle was vehement. Listen to this. Though we, he says, are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. You'll never read anything more vehement than that. He repeats it. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that he have received, let him be accursed. That's the way in which he wrote. No spirit of sweet reasonableness. No tendency to say, well, it doesn't matter that these people don't say exactly what I say, that they're adding something on doesn't matter. We're all Christians together. Not at all. There is a divine kind of intolerance here. Because as he suggests and teaches, the whole position is really involved in this Galatian heresy. Well, now, my friends, I'm obviously calling your attention to this, not because we take some kind of antiquarian interest in the, this ancient uh, heresy in Galatia. I'm calling attention to it because of its relevance to us today. That is the glory of the New Testament. It's not an academic book. It's the most practical book. It's the most up-to-date book. It's the contemporary book. There is no single problem or heresy that is described in the New Testament but that you'll find it in some shape or form in the church at this moment. And we are engaged not in an academic discussion of a spiritual depression. We are talking about ourselves. We are talking to one another. And it is because these things are still with us and because the Galatian heresy in a modern form is still with us that I'm calling your attention to it. There are many Christian people who have passed through exactly these stages. They've heard the truth. For the first time, they were amazed and astounded at it. They said, I never knew that that was Christianity. They are delighted. They receive it with joy, and they experience amazing blessings. But subsequently, they're confronted by some other teaching. They may, in their folly, have sought it, or it may have come to them without their seeking it. Somebody may have approached them, have given them a book or a pamphlet, or have suggested that they go and listen somewhere. And so they're introduced to another kind of teaching. And uh, at once this other teaching appeals to them because it appears to be so scriptural. Oh no, they say, we don't deny anything that you've believed and anything you've heard, but they say, you haven't had it all. There's something further. And it produces the Bible and it quotes its scripture and its books are about the Bible. Apparently they are the people who stand for the Bible more than anybody else. And here it is put to these young Christians and others, and uh, it seems to appeal to them. Because of its scriptural character and because it promises uh, such uh, unusual blessings if they but believe it and despise it. And so they take it up. And then they find themselves unhappy and confused. Many are unhappy and confused without taking it up. They don't actually take it up, but they're disturbed by it, and they're rendered unhappy. They say, well, I, I can't answer this. I'm not quite sure about this. And, and their joy seems to go, and they're in a state of perplexity, and they don't quite know what's happening. They say, it's one of those two positions. I say they're, they're either made unhappy by the mere contemplation of it, or they actually espouse it, but still they lose their first happiness. Now, it is no part of my understanding of the preaching of the gospel to mention 
particular teachings as such. I'm sure that you're all familiar with what I have in my mind, and yet it seems to me that on this occasion I must mention certain just as illustrations, not that I propose to deal with them in detail. The Roman Catholic Church has often done the very thing I'm describing. You get it also among such movements as Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. You get it sometimes with teaching even about uh, adult baptism or so-called believer's baptism, which must be by immersion. You get it uh, sometimes in terms of um, the absolute necessity of speaking with tongues if you're to be sure that you've received the Holy Spirit. And you get it sometimes in connection with healing, physical healing. Well, those are but illustrations. There are many others. I'm simply mentioning these things in order that we all may realize that this is very practical, that it's not a theoretical remote discussion, but that we are surrounded by these things and that they all partake of the character of the Galatian heresy in the way that I'm about to show you. Because here, it seems to me, the apostle laid down once and forever the great principles which we must ever carry in our minds if we want to safeguard ourselves against these dangers and make quite sure that we are standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set us free. That's his great exhortation. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage it was his love of these people. He was like a father to a child, as he tells them here. It wasn't that he, the apostle, was pedantic or that he was self-centered and egotistical and individualistic. No, no. His only concern is the life, the spiritual life and welfare of these people. My little children, he says. He's almost a mother to them, of whom I travel again in birth until Christ be formed in you. And it is in that spirit that I'm calling to your attention to this subject. God knows I'd infinitely prefer not to do so. I've already reminded you that we're living in an age which doesn't like this sort of thing. The tendency today is to say, what's it matter? Let's all be together if we use the name of Christ anyhow, somehow. And this particularizing and this defining is abhorrent, alas, not only to those outside the church, but to those who are inside the church. I do it, therefore, with great reluctance that I should be betraying what I believe to be my call of God into the Christian ministry if I didn't expound the scriptures and try to teach the word of God as it is before us, whatever the modern attitude and the modern opinion may chance to be. Very well then, how do we face this kind of position? Well, the first thing the apostle lays down is the question of authority. That must of necessity be the first thing. These problems are not a matter of feeling, they're not a matter of experiences. They must never be judged merely by results. False teaching can make people very happy. Let's be quite clear about that. If you judge in terms of feelings and experiences and results only, well, then you'll find that every cult and every heresy that the church and the world have ever known can justify themselves in terms of results. It is the most fallacious test of all. No, no, we must start with the question of authority. And what is the authority? Well, as I've already reminded you, the apostle gives it us in the first chapter. 
Indeed, the question of authority is the thing he deals with in the first two chapters. Obviously, the apostle's own personal position was involved and was on trial. And that is why perforce he has to say so much about himself and about his conversion. I do commend you to read and to study carefully these first two chapters at your leisure. The apostle takes up this position. He says that he can defy anyone to preach any other gospel but this. He says, if I myself, or even an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. Why? Well, this is his basis. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for I neither received it of men, neither was I taught it by men, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give his experience of how he came into the ministry. He says, you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jewish religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And on and on he went on till that dramatic moment on the road to Damascus. And God in Christ called him and set him into the ministry. He knew he'd been separated from his mother's womb. He was given his commission and his message by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Ah, yes, but he knew something more than this. Though he had come into the ministry in this rather unique way and is able to describe himself in writing to the Corinthians as one born out of due time, a kind of ectopic, uh, he nevertheless says, the gospel that was given to me was exactly the same gospel that was given to the others also. When he met the other apostles who had been with the Lord in the days of his flesh, when he went up and spoke to them at Jerusalem, he found that he was preaching exactly the same gospel as they also were preaching. Though it's come to him in this individual way as a direct revelation, the others were preaching precisely the same thing as he was preaching himself. Very well then, there I say is the basis of authority. And that is the authority that the apostle pleads here and argues. He says it isn't a question of one man saying this and the other man saying that. He says, I'm not preaching what I think. It was given to me. It was given to the other apostles. We're all saying the same thing. The test of truth is its apostolicity. Is it or is it not the apostolic message? That is the test and that is the standard. The gospel of Jesus Christ as announced and taught in the New Testament claims nothing less than that. That it comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who gave it to these men and they preached it and they wrote it and caused it to be written and here is our only standard. And my friends, it is still the only standard. We have no standard at all apart from the New Testament. And therefore, we must take every teaching or any point of view and bring it and hold it in the light of this. And as we do so, that we, we shall find that these false teachings are always guilty along one of two lines. The first is that they may be less than the apostolic message. Let's be perfectly clear about this. There is an apostolic message, I say. There is a deposit of truth. There is that which was agreed by all the apostles and preached by them all. There is the message. Now then, false teaching may be guilty of being less than the message. It leaves certain things out. 
and this is something which trips so many Christians today. If a man says something violently wrong, they can see it at once, but if he doesn't say things, they don't, they're not concerned about it. They don't see that. But I say it may be less than the apostolic message. It may be less with regard to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may deny his deity, his unique deity. It may deny the truth about two natures in one person and yet unmixed. It may deny the virgin birth. It may deny the miraculous in his life. It may deny the literal physical resurrection and still call itself Christian. It's less than the truth. Or it may deny the work of Christ. It may deny the fact that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It may describe the death of Christ as just a marvelous exhibition of love, uh, the, the, the perfect example of a passive resistor, a pacifist or something like that. It denies that God laid on him the iniquity of us all and punished our sins in his body on the tree. That is what the apostles preached, that Christ died for our sins. It doesn't say that. It leaves it out. It's less than the apostolic truth. And likewise with the rebirth so often, which it doesn't believe and which it doesn't emphasize. And likewise sometimes even with conduct and behavior. Because the New Testament emphasizes conduct and behavior. Let's be perfectly fair on both sides. There are people who say they believe in Christ. They would have agreed with everything I've said hitherto, but they seem to deduce this from it, that if you believe in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do. The terrible sin of antinomianism, that appalling error and heresy of antinomianism. The New Testament teaches the importance of works. Faith without works, it says, is dead. You prove your faith by your works. Now, to leave out any one of these things is to give less than the apostolic message. But the special danger in the case of Galatia, as we've already seen, was the opposite, namely of adding to the truth saying, yes, the apostolic message is right, but if you want to be a real Christian, put a plus behind it, add something onto it. Now then, this is the thing I say that we have to deal with in particular. But let us be clear that we've got that first principle. Every teaching is to be tested by the teaching of the New Testament. Not by feelings, not by experiences, not by results, not by what other people are doing and saying. The whole world may virtually be going after it, and you may have to stand alone like Martin Luther. Doesn't, don't worry about that. Here's the test. Apostolicity. The New Testament teaching. Then another very good test is this. Always be careful to work out the implications of a teaching. Now that is what the Apostle does partly in this second chapter of this great epistle to the Galatians. He works it out in detail. You see, this new teaching appeared not to be denying Christ at all. And yet the apostle is able to show very plainly and clearly that it denies him at the most vital point of all. He even had to do that, he tells us, with the apostle Peter at Antioch. Peter, who had been given the vision and who had apparently seen these things so clearly, he was influenced subsequently by the Jews and dissimulated and felt that he couldn't eat with Gentiles. He had to separate himself and be with the Jews only. And Paul points out to him, Peter, he says, you're denying justification by faith. Now, Peter didn't realize that and Peter didn't want to do that. 
Peter never intended to deny Christ or his salvation by Christ. But the apostle shows him that the real implication of his position is that he is denying that. He's saying that something else is necessary. Well, therefore, I say, let us work out always the implications of what we believe. Oh, can I give you an illustration to show you what I mean? Somebody I was discussing this matter with a few days ago somewhere uh, was in difficulty about this point. Uh, this person couldn't see how certain people who really lived very good lives and very noble lives. Uh, she, uh, she said, I can't see how you can say that they're not Christians. I know they don't believe in Christ and they don't go to church, but look at their lives. Now, she was a good Christian woman. She was really troubled about these people because they were such good people. But I said, wait a minute. Don't you see the implication of what you're saying? I said, what you are really saying is this, that those people are so good and so excellent and so noble that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is unnecessary in their case. The coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth was unnecessary for them. They can do it on their own. He needn't have died upon the cross. They can reconcile themselves to God by their good works and their good lives. I said, can't you see that by liking these people and falling into that argument, you're really saying that Christ and his death are unnecessary. The implication, and she saw it. Work out the implications, my friends. Don't stop with the thing at its face value. Say, what does this really mean then? What is this really saying? Very well, that's the second principle. But let me hurry on to the third, in which I want to put to you some of the special characteristics of this particular heresy as it is expounded in the epistle to the Galatians. First, it is always an addition to revelation. This preaching about circumcision is not a part of Christ's message, says Paul. These people who preached that to you didn't get it from Christ. Christ, when he gave me the message, didn't say that all people must be circumcised. It isn't a part of his revelation. It's an addition to it. It is an addition to the apostolic message. Now, I think you'll find that this is a characteristic of all this type of heresy uh, with which we are dealing this morning. Take, for instance, the Roman Catholic claim. The Roman Catholic Church claims this, that she is as much inspired today as were these first apostles. She's got no basis for, for saying that in Scripture. She says that herself. This is a subsequent revelation that has been given to the Church. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, quite openly and plainly, there is no subtlety about it, she says it actually, that tradition is equal in authority with the Scriptures. That the Church herself is as authoritative as the Word. That's why you've got to take the last word, the pronouncement ex cathedra of the Pope. He is as inspired as were the Apostles. It's an addition to this revelation. It's true of all of them, of course, not only of the Roman Catholic Church. Before you accept any one of these teachings, my friend, always take the trouble to read about their origins. And you'll find that almost invariably there's something like this. How did these movements come into being? Well, somebody or another had a vision. I say this not for your amusement, but as a simple fact. In the vast majority of cults and such movements, it is a vision that has come to a woman. Read the histories. 
The teaching is based upon a woman. The, the, the apostle says that he suffers not a woman to teach. That doesn't seem to matter. But not only that, but the woman has had a vision. A vision. Some special revelation has been given. Oh, they say, I know you don't find that in the scriptures, but it's been given directly to this person from God and by God. You see, they're adding something to the revelation that we have here. It's something further. It's something more advanced. They claim that they are as inspired today as were these apostles of Jesus Christ. And they base their authority on that. Apply that test, I say, to most of these teachings. You'll find it'll be true. But remember this, that it is true of many who are still within the ranks of the Christian church who take this sort of view of the scriptures. Oh yes, they say those men were inspired, but they say men are still inspired. They say Browning is inspired, Wordsworth is inspired, any poet can be inspired, and the men today who interpret the scriptures are inspired. They say we don't deny inspiration. What we do deny is that it's stopped at the end of the New Testament canon. It's going on. So you can add to truth. And as the centuries pass, the truth grows and becomes much more wonderful, and special things are being revealed to us with all our modern learning in the 20th century. That's adding to the revelation. That means that the scripture is no longer your ultimate test. Modern scholarship must be added in addition. Or the modern men and the modern outlook, the modern conditions, that's further revelation. It's always true of them, as it was in the case of the Galatian heresy. Another characteristic always is this. That these teachings always emphasize some one thing in particular and give great prominence to it. Here in the case of Galatia, it was circumcision. We'll be considering next Sunday morning, God willing, something else. Philosophy. But here it's circumcision. And it is this one thing that has led to the movement. This is one thing has led to the teaching and the special instruction. This one thing is the mainspring and the inspiration of the entire movement. Yes, they say you're quite all right, but in addition, this one thing, seventh day, or immersion, believer, tongues, healing, something else, this one thing, that's the big thing, it's always in the prominent position at the center. And you're more conscious of that one thing than you are of Christ. Because the emphasis is on that. There wouldn't have been a movement, but for this one thing, circumcision, whatever form it may take. Then the third point I've already mentioned, which is that all these things are always in addition to Christ. Yes, says the Roman Catholic Church, of course you must believe in Christ, and they're orthodox in their beliefs concerning him. That isn't the trouble. But you must also believe in the church. You must also believe in the Virgin Mary. You must believe in the saints. You must believe in a priesthood. In addition to. From the sheer standpoint of orthodox doctrinal, and doctrinal belief and theology, I find myself nearer the Roman Catholic Church than many within the ranks of Protestantism. But where I part company and must part is this, that they put this fatal plus after Christ. Christ plus the church, the virgin, the priests, the saints, and so on. Christ alone is not enough, and he doesn't stand in all his unique, solitary glory at the center. And I say it is the same with all the others. You must have some special experience. 
You must have some particular belief about observing days, as the apostle puts it, and so on. You must undergo some special rite or some special sacrament. Oh, it's Christ plus always. And you must have this addition if you're to have the true experience. Or let me hurry on to put it in this way in the fourth place. It always means in some shape or form that faith alone is not enough. The apostle puts that plainly in the sixth verse of the fifth chapter. Listen to him. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. They're always telling us that we must do something ourselves. We must add something on. We must add on some belief or some action on our own part or allow something to be done to us. Faith isn't enough. We don't stand by faith. Justification by faith is gone. He has fallen from grace, says Paul in that sense, to these Galatians. And all who are guilty of these things can be charged with the same charge. In other words, faith in Christ and the simplicity that is in Christ is not enough. We've got to add some sort of work and we've got to be doing some special something before we get this great experience. But lastly, let me point out this to you and often I thank God for this last test because it's been such a help to me. To believe any such teaching always means to deny former Christian experience. Where is the blessedness he spake of? You know what he means by that? He means this. He says, foolish Galatians, beloved Galatians. Are you really telling me that what you experienced when I first came amongst you was fraud? Was of no value? Was all that nonsense? Was all that incomplete? Where is the blessedness he spake of? Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This only I would learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. You know you received the Spirit. Go back, remember, you did receive the Spirit. Did you get that by the works of the law? Did you get that because you were circumcised? Of course you didn't. You hadn't been circumcised. It was by the hearing of faith alone. Can't you see, he says, you're denying your own past experience. And these teachings are all guilty of that. That is what the Apostle points out in his statement about his argument with Peter at Antioch in the second chapter. He says, Peter, you're going back on the biggest thing in your life. It's his whole argument about Abraham. Abraham, he said, was blessed not after circumcision, but before circumcision. You can't say circumcision is essential. Even Abraham, the originator of it all, he had his great blessing before, not after. The thing, circumcision was not essential to the blessing. You're denying his experience. Oh, how often I say, have I found this argument to be of value? You read these teachings and they're subtle, they're specious, they're attractive. And you feel, well, now this is it, this must be right. Then this is the thing that often holds you. You say to yourself, ah, there was, for instance, a man like George Whitfield or John Wesley, undoubtedly filled of the Spirit, used in amazing and mighty manner by God. One of the outstanding saints of God and one of God's greatest servants, I look at them. Whitfield and Wesley and Kelvin and Luther and Pascal and Knox and all the great mighty array of the greatest servants of God the world has ever known. 
and I find that they observed the first day of the week and not the seventh. I find that they were not baptized when they were adults and in a particular manner. I find they never spoke with tongues. I find that they didn't hold healing meetings and so on. My friends, are we to say that all these men were lacking in knowledge and in experience? Can't you see that these new teachings, which claim so much, are denying Christian experience throughout the ages and the centuries? They're virtually saying that truth has only come to them. And for 1900 years, practically, the church dwelt in ignorance and in darkness. The thing is monstrous. The thing is pathetic, my friends. We must realize that these things are to be tested in this way. Where is the blessedness? Never believe in anything that invalidates your own experience or the great experience of the Christian church throughout the ages and the centuries. Reject it. It cannot be true. But that brings me to the last word and the final test, which is just this. Having gone through all this, I'm sure you're all ready to join with me in saying what was said by the Apostle himself in the 17th verse of the last chapter. Henceforth, he says, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This is what he means. Listen. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Stop talking to me, he says, about circumcision or uncircumcision. I'm not interested. Stop talking to me about your seventh day or your first day or any other particular days. Stop talking to me about all these things that are absolute essentials if I am to be a complete Christian. I don't want them. God forbid that I should glory. I'll make my boast in nothing and in no one, nor in any special teaching, save in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone, and he's enough, because by him the world has been crucified to me, and I am crucified unto the world. Let me put it plainly. I will not make my boast, I will not glory, even in my orthodoxy, for even that can be a snare if I make a god of it. I will glory only in that blessed person himself by whom this great thing has been done, with whom I died, with whom I've been buried, with whom I am dead to sin and alive to God, with whom I've risen, with whom I'm seated in the heavenly places, by whom and by whom alone. The world is crucified unto me, and I am crucified unto the world. My friend, anything that wants to come into the center instead of him, anything that wants to add itself onto him, I say reject it. The apostolic message concerning Jesus Christ, in all its directness, its simplicity, and its glory, God forbid that we or any one of us should add anything to it. Let us rejoice in him, in all his fullness, and in him alone.
Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.